Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me. How are you doing, Darcy? Uh, on the mend, getting better, but still not feeling tip-top, but, you know, doing what I can. It is what it is. Yeah. I read somewhere that, like, if you have a cold for longer than three to five days, then you should see a doctor or something like that. But what are they really going to do? If they have a cold, it's not like they can give you antibiotics. It's a cold. Right, yeah. Maybe, like, a steroid shot or something. I don't know, but... I don't... I eh. just don't think that's smart. Yeah. Um, to do that, unless you're seriously sick. Like, just for a cold, like, it is what it is. Wait for it to get over with, unless you're, like, yeah. experiencing pneumonia or something. But anyway. Yeah. Um, I have an interesting article that I found. I don't know if you saw this, but it's a Maryland widow put her million-dollar mansion on the market, then sovereign citizens moved in. Did you hear about this? Vaguely. So I didn't read, actually, what happened, but I did see the headline. So I guess the house was valued at $1.5 million, um, and it was in the Falls Road area of Maryland, which I guess is a pretty nice area, hidden among trees on two acres with an elegant outdoor terrace overlooking lush green forest. Mm. The two-and-a-half-story mansion boasts a stone fireplace and vaulted wood-beam ceilings, six bedrooms and five bathrooms, a deluxe butler's pantry, an indoor pizza oven, large windows across the walls of the 10,000 square foot space. And this, this sounds like an amazing house. Yeah. There's even a tree house with a wraparound porch. Wow. It was a dream house designed and built by a prominent commercial real estate broker and his wife in 2005, two years after the pair married. When he died early last year, his widow hired a real estate agent who put the house on the market and then moved out, right? Cause this is a huge house. She's single. Yeah. She doesn't need that much space anymore. And um, the phone calls from worried neighbors started in June. So I guess there was a chain locked across her driveway entrance and warnings against trespassers appeared along the perimeter of the property. And then a group was spotted unloading furniture and other items from a moving truck. Uh... Yeah. And she's like, well, the house is still for sale. I don't know why that would be happening. But yeah. I guess the locks had been changed and that she's being accused of fraud and sued for property ownership. The owner of the houses? Yes. These are squatters. So, yeah. She would not allow the Baltimore Sun, which is the paper that covered this originally, to, to say her name. Yeah. For safety reasons, obviously. But a group of at least five self-proclaimed sovereign citizens overran the mansion last month, attempting what one squatter described as a sovereign acquisition. Oh, my gosh. Self-proclaimed sovereign citizens reject courts, the law, and law enforcement as illegitimate, often renouncing themselves as U.S. citizens and relying on their interpretation of law to claim that courts are powerless over them. The FBI classifies some sovereign citizens as extremists, yeah. um, basically domestic terrorists. Earlier this month in Massachusetts, a group of 11 sovereign citizens armed with illegal firearms and dressed in fatigues engaged in a nine-hour standoff with police during a traffic stop, partially closing Interstate 95. These people, these sovereign citizens, often bog down courts with fraudulent filings, say the police, which some dub as paper terrorism. They resist paying taxes and traffic fines, and they attempt to move into unoccupied houses that they don't own claiming the rights to the property. Not only is prosecuting these people difficult, but there's just not enough laws in place that will prevent sovereign citizen activities, say researchers, 
Um, under Maryland law, trespassers can obtain legal title to a property by occupying it for 20 years, even without permission through a process called adverse possession. That's, I think, pretty standard across the board for many states. I've heard of it before. It's something that we learned about in property law. But one of the squatters in this particular instance named Tessa Mona Modiri, um, she calls herself a non-citizen national. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She filed a complaint in early June alleging the homeowner and her mortgage company are fraudulently using a third-party real estate agency to short-sell the property. Who did she file a complaint with? It doesn't say. But I'm assuming it's a court that she doesn't believe exists? It's ridiculous. Gotcha. Yeah. How would you do... Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. A short sale, which is legal under a process specified in state law, is when a bank allows an owner to sell a residence for less than the person owes on the home's mortgage. I'm not sure if this homeowner was using a short sale, but this is what yeah. she's being accused of. The homeowner's denying all of this and saying, that's not true. I'm not doing this. Yeah. But this person, this Modiri, filed a similar civil complaint June 14th, attempting to take ownership of a foreclosed commercial property in Hartford County, according to court records. Again, she's filing it with the local courts of Hartford County, even though she's claiming that they don't have any jurisdiction over her, which is crazy, right? Yeah. In her complaint in Baltimore County, Modiri asserts the property belongs to her since she gained access to the home through a broken back door, concluding it was clearly abandoned. Absolutely not. That's not how anything... <laughs> Finders keepers is not a thing. <laughs> it doesn't work with property. Yeah. Whatsoever. Anyway, court records list a Bel Air address for Modiri that's shared with Renu Med Spa, which offers Botox, chemical peels, and other cosmetic services. So she's... Sharing her legal residence with a Bel Air spa? What? It just doesn't make any sense. The website describes Modiri as a Bel Air dentist. Are we talking about Bel Air, California, or is there a yeah. Bel Air, Maryland? Bel Air, California. Oh, no, no. This is Bel Air, Maryland. Okay. Um, but she's described as a dentist. So this Tessa Modiri, who's taken over this place and claiming this sovereign ownership or whatever has an active dentist license with the Maryland State Board of Dental Examiners. Which she doesn't believe controls her. Has any authority. Right, right. Gotcha. Um, she didn't I'll return. Out. Yeah, so the authorities and newspaper um, folks try to get a hold of this woman, and she's clearly not returning any calls. And they also tried to reach her at work and were unsuccessful. Other occupants of the home could not be reached, which it's not, it doesn't sound like a home. It sounds like a yeah. medical office. but. Police reports detail how the group, which included an infant, so they're dragging oh a baby into this as well, attempted to acquire the property. One allegedly posed as a buyer's agent, for instance, to hire a home inspector, police wrote. They also hired a contractor to install new security cameras. So they went in there as buyers of this house so they could get the lay of the land and they could uh, know where they needed to come in, what the most accessible entrances were, where they needed to put security cameras and whatnot. So the homeowner believes these guys are pros, and they've clearly done this before. Yeah. Last month, police tried to remove the squatters by demanding they come outside, but they refused. So the county deployed a helicopter at least once, and several police units, including armed vehicles, in an unsuccessful attempt to reach them June 16th, according to police reports. So they're spending probably thousands and thousands of dollars of taxpayer money to take care of this issue, which is just astounding. But officers were only able to secure a search warrant for the home after identifying one of the squatters. Michael Lawrence Warren is a felon with an extensive criminal record, who this is the guy they identified, during a June 23rd traffic stop as he left the property. 
This is okay. according to police reports. Other squatters were stopped by police for violating traffic laws when they left the home or were uncooperative, threatening civil action against the officer who pulled them over and refusing to identify themselves. So they're saying, you know, you don't have any authority over us. Yeah. You can't make this stop. But this Warren person has also been convicted in various states of impersonating a lawyer and committing multiple sex offenses, according Jeez. to court records. So he's just a bad dude all the way around. Um, he was arrested after police recovered a loaded handgun and ammunition believed to belong to him um, from a safe in the home. He's being held without bail in the Baltimore County Detention Center and is charged with multiple counts of burglary and illegally possessing a firearm and ammunition, which he believes he doesn't need to have any kind of authority uh, give him permission for that, that he's allowed to because he's a sovereign citizen. Right. But Online court records show police arrested Modiri, the dentist, on Wednesday, and she's been indicted on burglary charges. She was detained pending a bail review hearing. Police have also charged three other squatters. Ayana Bell, Ayana B, which A-Y-Y-A-N-N-A-A-B-E. It's kind of a very different spelling of that name. Yeah. Cox, Cesar Telez, Z uh, Zaniga, and Kia Dyer. With, they all got charged with third-degree burglary, but they haven't been able to make arrests for these other people, even though they didn't make those charges against them. It's unclear where some of these people are now, but they no longer appear to reside in the mansion, according to the homeowner. Similar incidents have occurred across the United States, particularly recently. Um, there was one case in 2013 that came to prominence. This was in Prince George's County, where a man illegally occupied a mansion in Bethesda, Maryland, basing his ownership claims on, an eight, on a 1787 treaty between the U.S. and Morocco. And I think what? this is where some of these sovereign citizens are getting their, base, their legal basis, they're saying. But it's from this treaty between the U.S. and Morocco in 1787 that some sovereign nationals say exempts them from American laws. This person was convicted of burglary, attempted theft, and identity fraud. In June of this last year, four self-proclaimed sovereign nationals were arrested in a New Jersey home. A man in that case faces charges that include burglary and trespassing, as well as terroristic threats. And a Tennessee family tangled with self-identified sovereign citizens after it bought property once belonging to the man's mother. He'd filed a judgment against the property claiming the sale was improper. So evidently authorities say most of these cases are successful, or excuse me, Authorities say most of these cases where they're claiming, making claims, these sovereign individuals, um, are not successful. Right. But they're, you know, they're able to clog the court systems with their claims. And like you were saying, it's, it's contradictory because they're saying, you don't have any authority over me, but I'm going to go through you to get what I want, yeah. nonetheless. But it can be hard to fight these cases because these guys often purposefully protract litigation to stall efforts to remove them. So they, mm -hmm. they try to throw a roadblock in, in any case that they can. But such legal claims are attached to a property title, and they can affect property owners negatively when they attempt to sell the property. Even if the Baltimore County squatters are convicted of the burglary and other charges, which include malicious, which include malicious destruction of property for changing the locks, they won't necessarily void Madiri's civil lawsuit. One does not preclude the other in either direction. Hmm. The homeowner did file a wrongful detainer action in June against Modiri and other home occupants to have them evicted from the home. And court records show that her attorney also filed a motion to dismiss the case against the homeowner. It's difficult to get them to come to court. And when they are there, they don't recognize the power of the court to do anything. Right. It's going to take a while to unwind this. So just crazy how you can have this house that you worked so hard for and spent so much money on, you leave, put it on the market, and somebody comes and changes the locks and 
takes it. The sovereign citizen movement is a real problem and I don't know if this is the first time you have heard of it or maybe our listeners for the I've first I've heard time. of it before. I Googled it when they did that standoff yeah. on the road in Maryland because I was like, what is this yeah. all about? Very, very it's, interesting. It's a real problem. Chevy and Shane Kehoe, who we did that episode on in mm-hmm. the past, were sovereign citizens. Um, historically, it has been linked to white separatists, um, yeah. white supremacists. But there's also some and, black people and African Americans that are now getting involved yes. in it, particularly with the claims from the U.S. Treaty with Morocco. Yes. They're saying that they are under the authority of that treaty. Right. So. It's, it's, it's a super interesting kind of development and a movement out there right now and the different factions of it and where they come from and how they relate yeah. to this is just, it's well, super interesting to me. And that's the thing is, is it's not a new movement. I mean, this has been going on since the 70s or 80s um, in terms of the, the white separatist sovereign citizen movement. Um, yeah. It is primarily confined to like northern Idaho area um, and there's a believe Elohim City, which we also have talked about with the Chevy and Shane um, Kehoe case. Elohim City in, is Kansas, I think, or Missouri. That's also associated with the sovereign citizen movement. So, I mean, it is a real problem. They're recognized by the federal government as extremists, the sovereign citizens that yeah. I've talked about. Um, the Southern Poverty it's Law Center. It's my understanding Center, that this movement has been around for yeah, decades, for like a long centuries. Time. The Southern Poverty Law yeah. Center has a lot of uh, literature on the sovereign citizen movement um, if you are interested in learning more. But it is, I mean, there's this goes back to like Timothy McVeigh and like, I mean, it, it, there's links to all kinds of domestic terrorism within the sovereign citizen movement. And the, um, the Bundy family out in Nevada who are saying that the government can't um, – something about their, their the ranch like they're trying to say that the government can't do something on their on their ranch but it's federal property or something i forget was david koresh part of the sovereign no. citizens movement Mm-mm. okay he was seven he was he was originally seventh day adventist which is a, a, uh-huh. a, a christian denomination um and then he left that church and formed his own seventh day adventist um denomination Just, yeah to me it's fascinating yeah they would try to apply something to this several hundred years old treaty right. that I'm not even sure existed in the first well, place, but it, it's fascinating. Yeah, and that it wouldn't be superseded by any other laws. Like, that's just the one thing that is, they're like, I agree to this and nothing else. Like, that's just... There's a lot of contradictions yeah. within the Well, they movement. just make it up as they go um, along, because they just want to be able to do yeah. whatever the, it is that they want and feel that they shouldn't get in trouble for it. I mean, basically. Yeah. Well, and I'm not necessarily convinced that their court actions are necessarily designed to be effective no. as much as they're designed to harass yeah. and, and keep prolong. people in court and spending money and prolong yeah. their stay wherever they're staying at. But that whole um, adverse possession theory is an interesting one as well that I studied in some detail when I was in law school um, because I had at one point thought I might go into property mm-hmm. law. And it's interesting, particularly in some of these more rural areas where people own, like, like we owned a plot of land in Idaho where our family homestead was. Um, and it was, I think, like 30 acres. Mm-hmm. And the house that was there, the original homestead house that was built in the late 1800s, uh, burned down in, I think, the 50s or 60s. And so the land has been vacant mm-hmm. for that amount of time. And that was the concern is my parents had gone, because there's a silver mine and there's some timber and different things on that property. And so the family would periodically go there and do a survey and detail the land to ensure that no one was Mm -hmm. trying to squat on there and claim that adverse possession because it's not uncommon in these more rural areas. 
Yeah. So very, very interesting um, case that I just wanted to cover off on. And I think we're going to continue to hear more about it in the upcoming. Yeah, it sounds like because it. it seems like there is a little bit of a jump in activity with that movement um, yeah. around Trump election yeah. and that sort of and thing. And I. And then the, the, the re-election or the election of Biden. So I, I think that people really pushed very hard to have that recognized and to um, establish rights within that movement at the around the time that Biden became president yeah. very strongly. And it, it is interesting because I have primarily heard about it in the Midwest and the West. And so for it to be happening in Boston and Maryland is very interesting. I'm not sure how long right. that movement has been around in the East Coast. And then, you know, what was their intention in taking over that roadway? Right. Like, was it just to get political media? Yeah. Like, what was that about? Yeah. Is what I want to know. So, like, don't worry. Like, when I see more stuff on it, I'll bring it up and and do a little bit of coverage on the show as much as we can. But it's, to me, it's super interesting. Yeah, one day I'm going to get around to doing an episode on the Sovereign Citizen Movement. The two, the couple in, was it like Utah or Nevada or Colorado, somewhere out there that killed the U.S. Marshals? Mm-hmm. They were sovereign citizens, too. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to get around to doing an episode about it. It is very fascinating. Um, it yeah. is very problematic, and it is a real concern that I don't think yeah. a, enough yeah. people are aware of right right now. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, main case for the day is one that I have been interested in a very long time um, and just now got around to covering. Um, I'm going to talk about Brittany Drexel. Okay. And I'm sure you've heard that name before. But uh, Brittany Drexel was born October 7th, 1991 in Rochester, New York. Um, it's believed that her father was either part or mostly Turkish. Okay. And didn't really have any um, connection with Brittany after she was born. Her dad at the time, her stepdad, um, adopted her and he was in the military. And so they moved around a little bit, but then he retired and she kind of grew up in an area called Chile, New York. That's C-H-I-L-I. Huh. With her mom, Dawn, and her adopted dad, Chad Drexel. And she ended up taking Chad's last name rather than her biological father. So, um, again, Chad adopted little Brittany at a young age. Um, She had one younger sister and brother. Um, However, by 2009, Chad and Dawn were divorcing. And by all accounts, the divorce was really hard on Brittany, which I think she was a teenager when this happened. I was going to say, I think maybe 10 years old. She was born in, what, 99, you said? Yeah, 91. No, 91, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she would have been, yeah, late teens. Yeah, which I, my stepdad and mother, who pretty much was my father at the time, got divorced when I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was awful. Yeah. You think that, you know, it's harder when a child is younger, but there is just as much argument that it's hard when you're a teenager as well, because you've already got all those hormones. Mm -hmm. You've got all kinds of drama that's natural with being a teenager anyway. And to Mm -hmm. have to throw that into the mix is challenging as well. And this is a person that you've grown up with as your father. And now that person is leaving. Right. And my, it's hard. My parents divorced when I was um, in my early twenties and it for me, it was kind of like, oh, you think you've made it through the childhood. Because, you know, you hear about people you go to school with, their parents get divorced yeah. when you're younger. So you're like, well, we've made it. We didn't get, you know, we, they didn't get divorced then. So, like, we're in the clear. And then it yeah. happened and it kind of, like, turns every, it it turned everything heart. upside down for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you think that you know you you've got the emotional you know equipment to deal with it by the yeah. time that you've reached your teenage years, but you really don't. It's really it difficult, yeah. Very emotionally trying for me, and and it appears that it was for Brittany as well. Yeah. Um, at this time, Brittany was a junior in high school, mm. so she was cute, popular, and athletic. She played soccer. She was pretty good, despite of her petite stature. In spite of her petite stature. Um, she was, by all accounts, pretty tiny, like a little, little petite, little, mm-hmm. little gal, um, and just really cute. Like you see pictures of her and you just think of her as just being this little kind of mischievous, like kind of elf. Like she okay. was just adorable yeah. and just by all accounts, she was super friendly and everyone loved her. Um, but she did suffer from depression and she was really struggling to deal with her parents' divorce. And I believe she was kind of dealing with depression prior to the divorce, and that just kind of exacerbated the situation um, from what I read. Um, And again, I don't think that's super uncommon for many teenagers today anyway. Mm -hmm. And then to add that onto it was kind of like adding more fuel to her fire. And she did have a boyfriend that she was dating at the time who was trying to help her get through her issues. Um, And that is helpful as well. Mm -hmm. But... Brittany also had a persistent condition called hyperplasmic primary vitreous in her right eye. Hmm. I'm not super clear on what that entails, but she had to have multiple surgeries to deal with this condition. And the eye, her, I believe it was her right eye, was pretty much blind because of the condition. So I know, like, so, vitreous is like the fluid is in the back of your eye. And... So, I'm, and, so she had to have some kind of issue with the fluid, and then yeah. she had surgery, and, and that pretty much created a blindness in that eye Yeah, hmm. from all the, the surgeries and the, the, the condition. Um, to keep it from wandering, mm-hmm. she would wear contact lenses. Okay. And they're pretty distinctive looking. If you see pictures of her, they're kind of a bluish color. I don't think blue was her natural eye color. But in any case, it was very distinctive. Like you see pictures of her and you, you, you know, you know, you see her face and it's very familiar. April 2009, Brittany decides to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for spring break. And she brings this to her mother and says, you know, this is what I want to do. I don't know if you ever took trips like that in high school. I certainly Without never my did. parents? Yeah. No. Like with friends. No. I mean, I, if, if I went with my friend's parents, but yeah, like no. not, not. Not just with your friends. No. Lord, no. Yeah, so she goes to her mother with this. And, and again, I wasn't sure if I was just being overreactive, but I, my parents would have been no way in hell are you going on a vacation. Yeah, to that Mur- wasn't Driving a thing to Myrtle Beach, North Carolina from yeah. New York South with Carolina. a group of girlfriends. Yeah. Excuse me, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There's no way. Yeah. And the thing is, what made it even more concerning to her mother, Dawn, was that she wasn't even really close with these girls. They were just kind of acquaintances that were mm-hmm. going down there that were like, hey, do you want to come? probably, you know, to share expenses and and whatnot. And her mom was like, absolutely not. You're not doing this. Which, you know, I don't blame her. Her mother did the right thing. She was a responsible adult. She told her, no, you're not going. And of course, Brittany fought with her about it. This was a, a major point of contention between the two. And eventually came to her mother and said, you know what? You're right. My bad. I'm gonna go. Can can we call a compromise? Uh And I'll go spend this a couple days with my friend here in town and she's close to a lake and we'll go hang out and do beach things around here instead is that okay would that be a good compromise and her mom you know trying to be a good parent and you know she knows Brittany has been struggling and she's trying to compromise as well says okay fine that's a reasonable compromise yeah and you want her to have a spring break I mean yeah 
Although I can't, we never did stuff like that. We weren't allowed to go. Yeah. I was always playing volleyball for spring break, so. Yeah, no. So um, in any case, I guess you can imagine being in the northern parts of New York and whatnot. You you want a vacation. You want to be someplace sunny and warm as soon as possible, right? Yeah. Brittany makes the fateful decision to travel with these acquaintances without her mother's permission. And so she basically has this cover story that she's going to hang out with her friend on this lake, nearby lake, and she's Mm -hmm. actually going to Myrtle Beach instead. Yeah. And like I I had written, for a variety of reasons, Brittany wasn't honest with her mother. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then she goes and does something different, which I don't think is entirely uncommon for teenagers, right? No. So so I just want to make it clear. So she has to go to the beach in Myrtle Beach with friend A. Mom says no. So she's like, can I go to the lake then with friend B? Or was it still friend A that she was going to go to the no, lake with? No, different friend. Different friend. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And her mom had, you know, tried to be compromised yeah. with her. But in any case, Brittany decided to go to Myrtle Beach with these three girls anyway. And she tells her mom she's going to stay with a friend. And she leaves April 22nd, 2009 for Myrtle Beach. Yeah. So this group of several girls stay at the Bar Harbor Resort Hotel. And she calls her mom and checks in frequently. She tells her she's at the beach, and her mom thinks it's Lake Ontario. Oh, Which is where she told her she was going. Right. And so she doesn't worry. Um, Mom reminds her, Brittany that is, that there's a barbecue the next day and tells her to make sure to be home on time and, you know, have fun, honey, that kind of thing. And Brittany's checking in. So it's not like she's lost contact. It's not, you know, she's texting her boyfriend the whole time. She's calling her mother. She's acting like a responsible teenager but three days into the trip on april 25th Brittany disappears and Brittany's boyfriend who had been in constant communication with her until then with calls and texts knows that there's something wrong yeah. and he knows she's in myrtle beach and he's been sworn to secrecy but when she stops responding to him april 25th Brittany's boyfriend calls her mom and tells her Brittany's really in myrtle beach Good call. Good call on the boyfriend's part. Yeah. And everyone then becomes super worried, you know, with good reason, obviously. When the family starts digging, they find that Brittany's group pretty much were on their own. And they pretty much went their separate ways each day. What? Not really hanging out with Brittany. And they're what, like 17? Yeah. How are they doing that? Because Brittany wasn't really their friend. She was just kind of an acquaintance. So she was like, well, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go to the pool. I'm going to go do whatever. And Brittany also knew some other people there. That had okay. gone down to Myrtle Beach, some boys and different things, right? So Brittany had left the hotel on the 25th of April and walked to the Blue Water Resort in the... It was kind of this place on the main drag, Ocean uh-huh. Boulevard, where all the action is. And these two hotels were less than two miles apart. And security footage shows Brittany going into the Blue Water Hotel and leaving around 8.45 that same night. And she's wearing shorts, a black and white tank top, and flip-flops. Okay. Like she looks like every other teenage girl that's in that area. Same yeah. kind of outfit, very familiar sort of a vibe with the people that are coming in and out of those hotels at that time because it's spring break, right? Yeah. But after that footage, Brittany is never seen again. Brittany's mom and her boyfriend immediately drive down to Myrtle Beach to look for Brittany, which, you know, who wouldn't do that? Obviously, yeah. At that point, it's not about like getting in trouble it's about like just making sure you're okay but they have a bad feeling yeah police search britney's room and find all of her things except her person's cell phone which i don't Mm -hmm. think that's surprising she i don't think she intended to go anywhere she was just out for a stroll visiting friends the question that her friends 
excuse me, the police question her friends but get different stories, and it's clear the girls were not super close to Brittany, and they can see that. Mm-hmm. And the other girls pretty much, they're like, they answer police questions, but then they're like, hey, we got to go home. Bye. What? Yeah. Well, they were, their vacation was over, and they didn't want to get in trouble for staying in Myrtle Beach longer than they were supposed to, so they left. And they weren't under suspicion at all, so please I mean, let them leave. Still, though, I just can't imagine like not if somebody wanting to I like, knew, help as much as I could. Exactly. Yeah. If somebody I knew was in a similar, I'd want to stay and help search for them. Yeah. But again, unless they also were like lying to their parents and they needed it's to. It's possible. It's yeah. entirely possible. But they yeah. all take off and go home. Brittany's mom ends up staying. She's actually there for like two months looking for mm. her daughter. But police get cell phone records and determine that Brittany's phone had pinged off tower 60 miles south of Myrtle Beach Whoa! on the day after she disappeared. I guess it was south or southwest. And then they stop. So it's one paying off this tower 60 miles away from the hotel, and then it stops and dies. That's like a long So they way. think her, her phone died. Yeah, that's a, that's a significant like amount That's close to Georgia. Space. Yeah. Well, police search Myrtle Beach in the area where the phone pinged. Brittany's body has never been found to this day. Volunteers searched for four to six months on a large scale. They had anywhere from two to 800 people at any mm. one time. They were out looking for Brittany, doing searches, looking through the brush, like looking everywhere for this young woman. And here are the suspects. So initially, Peter Brozowitz was the suspect. He's a 20-year-old club promoter from Rochester, and Brittany knew him from back home. And he, he was, was staying at the beach? Yeah, he was staying at the Blue Water Hotel, and that's where she had gone to visit. He was staying there with his friends in a hotel not too far from Brittany's hotel. And Brittany was actually with Peter on various occasions during this trip, including the night she disappeared. Um, The friends that Peter was with said they'd seen Brittany at a nightclub, then the next morning, and then the next night after she'd visited with them, she vanished. Mm. So... Weirdly enough, Peter checks out of the hotel at 1 a.m. the night after Brittany vanishes. Normal time for somebody to check out. Yeah, seems really suspicious to the authorities. Obviously. Peter claims he had nothing to do with Brittany's disappearance, and he doesn't appreciate his name being dragged through the mud. Ultimately, no charges came from the whole Peter connection. Hmm. Then there was a man by the name of Timothy Deshaun Taylor. This guy has a criminal past. Um, he had a conviction in a McDonald's robbery and he, the FBI believes that he was a part of Brittany's disappearance or knows what happened. In 2016, he was charged in federal court for the robbery and then to keep him, his crew thinks that they did this to keep him from, um, to keep him because they believed he was involved in Britney's case. Okay. So he'd been charged in state court for the robbery and the federal government charged him in federal oh, for the, okay. this as well. A statement from the FBI indicates they believe Britney's dead. So d- they just haven't found her body. What is it about this Timothy guy that they think he's involved? Okay, let me, oh, sorry. let me, let me continue because this next person is, is going to put a little bit more okay. completion into the story. But in June 2016, the FBI had made that statement saying they believe Brittany was right. dead, and then Taquan Brown came forward in 2016. He was currently serving 25 years for manslaughter. He told police that he was in a house and had seen Timothy. It was a stash house, like a, st- a drug stash house. Okay. And he'd seen Mr. Timothy Deshaun Taylor with Brittany. That Timothy had been sexually assaulting Brittany. And he claimed that Brittany was shot and her body was dumped in a place where alligators were. 
He also claimed that Tim's father, Sean, was the one that shot Brittany. And that he'd been visiting this stash house before he was um, convicted. So he had this information. Yeah. And he wasn't getting anything for it. It's not like he was trying to plea bargain with it. But he claims he has no interest in it except, you know, just to see that justice is served. She says, nothing has been offered to me in exchange for my testimony. There's no reason for me to lie. Hmm. Although it's, it's kind of interesting to note that there was a $25,000 reward for information leading to the case being solved. So mm-hmm. maybe he was hoping to cash in on that 25000 right? Yeah, maybe. Police then questioned Deshanti, who failed a polygraph. The story... I just got to warn you, is pretty disturbing. And it was to me when I heard about this. But Brown said that he saw Timothy sexually abusing Brittany and that Brittany, Brant, Brittany broke free and ran from the house when Taylor grabbed her, pistol-whipped her, and pulled her back into the house. He then heard two sh- gunshots and saw her body wrapped in carpet or tarp or something removed from the house before being dumped in an alligator pond. Mm. This information was partially collaborated by another informant. Whoa. Yeah. Taylor, in the meantime, denies everything, says he never met Brittany, and he doesn't even know Taquan Brown either. So this second person, this other informant, claims Taylor picked up Brittany in Myrtle Beach and took her to McClellanville to sell her into sex trafficking, which, again, is a whole nother story. Um, when When the media brought too much attention to this, Taylor killed her and made her disappear. So, ultimately, Brown later said he'd seen Brittany multiple times, on one occasion being sexually assaulted by eight to ten men in a group. Oh, my God. And that he hadn't recognized her until later. In 2019, Brown was interviewed, and he gave a different account this time than his first account. He said that it wasn't Taylor that shot Brittany, but a man named Nate. So, his story is just changing all the time, right? As of now, the FBI hasn't charged anyone with anything related to Brittany's disappearance. Brown, though, this guy who told on Taylor, actually filed a lawsuit December 2018 against the FBI and the U.S. attorney for publicly naming him. Mm. They said that because he's serving this 25 years in prison, that publicly naming him has put him in danger in prison. Yeah, I could and see that. And there's that there's a $15,000 bounty on his head Oof. at the moment. In prison. I also believe kill that, him. yeah. Yeah. The FBI believes Brittany is dead and was killed in McClellanville, but they've exhausted all the evidence, and they're 100% certain of her death, but they just can't, you know, they can't file charges if they don't have evidence to sustain those charges. There's currently a $25,000 reward for anything leading to an arrest in this case, but nobody and very little details makes this quite a challenge. Yeah. The authorities believe that most likely... Somebody lured Brittany away from the hotel with a promise of modeling and kidnapped her to sell her into sex trafficking. Ugh. Dawn eventually moved to Myrtle Beach to continue looking for her daughter. And again, they haven't found anything to this day. So let's just very quickly kind of talk about sex trafficking because it's an important element in this case. And I think that it is increasingly becoming um, something that we're becoming more and more aware of as a society. Yeah. But... Um, sex trafficking is human trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation, including sexual slavery, and it's actually considered a form of modern slavery. So according to Wikipedia, a victim is forced in one, in one of a variety of ways into a situation 
of dependency on their trafficker and then used by the trafficker to perform sexual services to customers. Sex trafficking crimes can involve acquisition, transportation, and exploitation, but can also include sex tourism with children. Domestic minor sex trafficking and other kinds of commercial sexual exploitation of children and prostitution. So in 2012, which was a little bit after this case actually came out, the International Labor Organization reported 20.9 million people were subject to forced labor across the world and 22% were victims of forced sexual exploitation. So there's a lot of this going on. In 2016, they estimated that 25 million people were in forced labor and 5 million were victims of sexual exploitation, at least around the globe. Mm. Can you imagine? However, due to the covertness of sexual trafficking, obtaining accurate, reliable statistics is difficult for researchers. The estimated global profits for sexual slavery are about 99 billion. And in 2005, the figure was given 9 billion for the total human trafficking cost. But... The victims find themselves in coercive or abusive situations from which escape is both difficult and dangerous. Locations where this practice occurs span the globe and reflect intricate webs between nations, making it difficult to construct viable solutions to this human rights problem. But I think sexual trafficking, sex trafficking in general, is more common than we think. Yeah, definitely. I think it is very covert. And I think it is very easy for these sex traffickers to go into these places like Myrtle Beach where these vulnerable teenage girls are drinking. And boys as well now, too. We do yeah. know that boys are included almost as often as young girls are. And they get these cute, little, innocent, naive you know, kids that are out there having a good time. They're away from their families. They're naive. They're drinking. Yeah. They're perhaps doing drugs. And they snatch them. Or they tell them, oh, hey, come with me and do this because I'm going to get you some good drugs. Or I'm going to get you a modeling job. Yeah. Or I'm going to do this for you. And then they end up stuck in this sex trafficking situation. And it is, it sounds like a, a just a terrifying prospect. Yeah. It's altogether too common. And I mean, I think like... I didn't go on vacations just with my friends in high school, but I definitely did in college. And, like, why in the hell did I think I was, like, mature enough and responsible enough to do that at, like, 19? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's just, yeah. I, I mean, like, and we, I'd never been to Myrtle Beach, but we went to, like, Panama City and Dustin and, like, all that's just, like, three hours from where I went to college. So, I mean, it's yeah. just, it's terrifying I mean, to think of all the things that could have happened, like, when we were younger. In no way do I want to do blame the victim but at the same time it's like we need to make our young people aware that this could happen because if we're running around naively not understanding the consequences of actions and different things that we're doing then it's much easier for someone to grab them if they know that this is a possibility they can do things to protect themselves you know what i mean i do but i don't know exactly how you and like how you teach that or like you you and how you make that like an ingrained lesson because you make like them aware that this is a thing that could happen somebody could try to tell you that you know this is what they want from you but they're telling you they're going to give you a modeling job like let's make them aware that this is out there right. and this is happening yeah. tell them circumstances and situations that potentially happen to them yeah that makes sense i mean i think that knowledge is power yeah absolutely and i mean the more people that know about that potential threat a it you know reduces the risk of it happening to them but b they can also see if it's happening to somebody else if they're around around it and that's the thing folks if you see something 
say something. Yeah. It's not, you're not doing anyone any favors if you see something like this and you keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And you can anonymously report, and we will put contact information in the show notes, and we've done this before, to report possible sex trafficking mm-hmm. if you see it. Um, there are ways to anonymously do it so that your name does not have to be out there if you're concerned about retribution or somebody trying to get revenge on you for reporting. But it's so important to yeah. keep your eyes open. And I think they have signs and things in, in bathrooms at airports and, and public locations now to report for stuff like that. Yeah, they do. I don't know that it's as prominent as I would probably like it to be, but I, I, I know that they are getting better at putting signs up. But um, like like Sarah said, we'll put out information, but NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, um, is a really, really good resource. Um, and we'll we'll link to that in the show notes too. Um, it's just, a, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's just, you can educate yourself and there's also resources for reporting and things like that. But I wholeheartedly believe that that's what happened to Brittany. I think she was taken it's for terrible. sex trafficking. And to me, this case has always been really disturbing. And I heard about it, I don't know, three or four years ago. Um, and to me, just the fact that somebody was grabbed yeah. and pulled into a sex slavery kind of a situation is the most disturbing part and that she lived her last hours yeah. being raped being tortured um, by multiple people most likely yeah and then shot and fed to alligators just to me was horrific like i couldn't imagine a worst way to end mm-hmm. somebody's life just the thought of that was just it kept me awake at night when it's, i heard about the story the first time it's very similar to the speculation that was going around after Natalie Holloway disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And that ultimately, we don't believe that is what happened. We don't think that's what happened to Natalie Holloway, but that was like one of the first things everybody thought. Um, was she was sold into sex trafficking? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's, I think, what was thought happened to Madeline McCann. Like, right. I think that that is now something that we jump to. But I would rather that we immediately suspect something like that and hunt it down. Sure to full fruition rather than just being like, oh, you know, somebody probably took her. She'll show up again someday. That's the thing about it is like with these stories is when, when like Natalie Holloway, for example, it was treated like, oh, she was probably sold into sex slavery as if that was like a boogeyman. Like, well, that's it. Like that, that was kind of like how it was treated at that time. And like, as opposed to like, this is a real thing that could happen that does happen. Um, it was kind of just like, well, that's the conclusion. She was, you know, this, that, and the other. And that's awful. Like, that that doesn't need to be where this, that story ends. And that that's not what ended up happening to Natalie Holloway, but that may be what happened in this case. And that's that doesn't need to be where that story ends. Like, that's the part yeah. that, that we need to keep going for, going forward and and identifying it and recognizing it when we see it and, and trying to do what we can to stop it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the kinds of numbers that I talked about earlier are suggestive of the fact that this is way more prominent than we think yeah. it is. It's in our communities. It's happening every day. And like you're hearing more and more stories about it now because people are coming forward and are not afraid to tell their right. stories. But I think that it's the sort of thing that was deeply shameful for many mm-hmm. years. Like anytime you'd had any kind of sexual assault or rape or anything like that prior to a certain t- time period in our history you were ashamed to say anything mm-hmm. about it because it, you, it kind of, there was a lot of victim blaming. Absolutely. And there's still, I mean, there's still a lot of it. We're getting, we're better, but there is still a lot of victim blaming that our culture yeah. does. Yeah. But if you're, you know, a seven-year-old boy 
or like a five-year-old girl, like how could you possibly blame the victim? It makes right. no sense. But I was thinking of the case of Steven Stainer. Mm. He was taken when he was yeah. seven and he was blamed because why didn't he try to escape? Yeah, and also the other thing is in situations where they're very minor children like that, blame the parents. Why weren't the parents out there? Yeah. How many times yeah. did I like play outside without my parents being right there watching me? You know what I mean? Like that's a normal thing to do. Yeah. At some point you have to let and your kids is, play outside by themselves or you're just going to like, they're not going to learn how to do yeah. anything. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. Like the thought of having a young child now is. Oh my God. With so many different Absolutely. things that are out there that, you know, school shootings, like Absolutely. this, that, and the other thing just seems like a horrifying prospect. But I think we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up unless you have anything else you want to add. I don't. All right. Well, you can always shoot us an email if you have questions, comments, or concerns. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And like I said, we'll put show notes and all that good stuff there too. Yeah, and I'll definitely post pictures on this one. Mm-hmm. I think that there's really, there's no evidence, no hope, no reports anywhere that, little, that poor Brittany is alive. But at the same time, you never know until you find that body. You know, there, there, there was the case. Well, of, and who was the young girl that was kidnapped and gone for like twenty years? What was her name? We did we covered her on the show, and she came back. They found her. Um, JC 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 Dugard. Yeah. Again, you have yeah. JC Dugard. You have that case. She came back. They thought she was gone for sure. And well, and she eventually was found. So even if unfortunately she was murdered, there's still the case of bringing somebody to justice and holding somebody responsible. Yeah. You know, and that's why that story doesn't need to be. That's why this doesn't need to be the end of her story either. Yeah. So my hope is that eventually somebody comes forward and, and gives that information up. And yeah. they probably will at some point, but. In any case, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.